Mike. I have the great privilege of working with the Abundant Life staff in this season of life. And, and I just want to tell you that it is a great honor and privilege to be with you today. Um, I want to let you know that Pastor Aaron did such a great job last week of opening up this series and opening up the book of James. And, and we're going to go through this as a survey. We're going to take a look at one of the main topics in each of the chapters, uh, five chapters in the book of James. But what I want you to understand is that more than anything else, the overarching theme of this book is it is about our conduct. As people of faith, it's about how we live. Uh, in other words, it's not just about listening to the word. James is really clear. It's about doing what it says. It's not all about works, but James is clear that faith without works is dead. And so in this regard, it reminds me of another book that I got way back when I was just starting out as a young man. It was this book by Arnold. And it was, as you can see, for, you know, for men, for, for manly men. And when I first got this book, I read it cover to cover. I, I was enthralled by it. In fact, what I would do is I would spend 20 minutes uh, in the morning, you know, kind of a quiet time where I would just be reading through different chapters. I would underline things that I found especially motivating. I would even memorize passages of this book that, that I found truly inspiring. And I was really confused that I never got any bigger. I, 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 my muscles were getting any stronger. And so I, of course, talked it over with my trainer and he mocked me. Uh, he told me he had never, never memorized any portion of the book. Uh, he had just spent his life putting it into practice, which is why he was so big. And, and then I, I realized it turns out that it really doesn't matter how much of a book like that you read. It's more about how much you do. And I want you to understand that this book, is a lot like that. The book of James is a great reminder that this book is not just a read book. This book is actually a book to put into practice. We're to listen to the perfect law that brings us freedom, and then we're to do what it says. Now, another thing to keep in mind when it comes to both your faith journey and, of course, your fitness journey is this idea of muscle confusion. And here it is. When you hit a plateau in your training or when you get stuck in a rut and you're not progressing, there is a way to break out of that rut, and it's called muscle confusion. It's when you do what you're not used to doing. It's when you mix it up. It's, it's when you do things that seem a little bit unnatural, maybe even counterintuitive, but it helps you attain heights that you have only dreamed of. This is really true. I know it's true. I, I read it in Arnold's book. And usually, confusion is a bad thing. For example, the IRS gets confused about how much you owe. That's a bad thing. Or maybe you're the one who's confused, and you uh, ask a, a pregnant woman when she's due, only to find out that she's not you know, pregnant and actually just a dude with long hair. <laughs> That's a mistake you'll only make once, or in my case, twice. But the idea of muscle confusion is a good thing. You see, it, the idea is that James is going to talk about a rut that we get into in our lives, in our faith, and it happens to all of us from time to time. It limits our growth. It limits our love. It limits our progress into the character of Jesus Christ and this full life that he has invited us to live. And this is the rut of favoritism. So let's jump in. It's James chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. He says, my brother. 
brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. That's the word. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold chain and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Okay. So he's talking about favoritism. That's the word he uses. And, and you could also use the word partiality. These seem fairly innocent in our vocabulary, but they are a polite covering for something more insidious. And so if you start to look at words like prejudice or racism or bigotry, suddenly we understand that this is a really big deal to God's heart. And, you know, most of us are prejudiced at, at certain places in our lives. People typically favor those who are like them. It's a little bit how we're wired as human beings throughout the centuries we've seen this. It just seems natural and normal. Here's some examples. For example, we gather around people who speak the same language, who like the same things, who drive the same kind of cars, vote for the same kind of candidates, agree that the 80s was the greatest decade ever. And of course, there are people who like to dress alike. For example, choirs or nuns or, you know, penguins. Uh, there are classy folks who like to hang out together, like, you know, these, these Seattle Seahawks fans or people who aren't quite as classy also like to hang out together, like, you know, Bears fans for Pastor Bob. See, that was favoritism, and, and that's bad. He, he, Humans have always shown partiality like this. But, friends, if we allow ourselves to stay in this kind of a rut, we will never be conformed to the character of Christ. So we must practice muscle confusion in this regard. In other words, we have to change it up. It'll take intentionality, but it's absolutely worth it. And so James is addressing his own congregation. He's speaking to the church in Jerusalem, and he had heard reports of the wealthy being favored in his church, treated like royalty, where, where those without means were given the leftovers. And he was especially angry because he knew that there were large amounts, there was a large and growing population of those members within his church who were suffering, who were poor, and this was due to persecution persecution, the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. So his congregants were losing their jobs and their homes and their property and their safety. And now they're losing when they come into the church, their dignity. And so the world was unsafe and difficult and faith was their only comfort. And then when they came into the assembly, they were experiencing prejudice against them. They're being put down. They're being moved to the back of the bus or told to sit on the ground and they're given the short end of the stick. And James says, hey, friends, this is not right. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine about this passage and, and he said to me that if we are guilty of prejudice at all, then certainly we would be guilty of prejudice against Jesus. And it's shocking, right? But think about it for a moment. People who look differently than we do, are there many Middle Eastern Jews among us? People who lack means, you know, Jesus was homeless. He had one robe. He had one pair of sandals to his name. People who aren't as educated as we are, Jesus never graduated college. People who speak differently than we do, do any of us speak Aramaic or Hebrew or ancient Greek? 
You see, people with different customs than we have. Do any of us recline at a Passover meal? I want you to understand that you and I might recoil against this idea and we might say things like, oh, I might be prejudiced against these or those or that group or this one, but I'd never be prejudiced against Jesus. And then the question comes up, well, how would you know? How would you even recognize him? You know, he's in those groups. He's a part of, of, of those, you know, gatherings. That's who he chose to hang out with. And so James is sincerely challenging us in this regard to hate discrimination. This is his first challenge in, in the chapter, hate discrimination. Now, he's not saying hate those who discriminate. He's saying hate the evil of discrimination. And so to be clear, I want, I want you to understand, I'm not talking about political correctness. I'm not talking about tolerance or legislation at all. I'm talking about taking this personally. So you and I, as human beings made in God's image, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to hate discrimination. You need to hate it. I need to hate it. Friends, heaven is comprised of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every class. And so this life is used to train ourselves in order to love like Jesus loves. And the Bible instructs us that we are to hate what is evil. And prejudice, racism, bigotry, favoritism, these are all expressions of evil. We have to protect our heart for from our heart flow the wellspring of our life. And so when we judge other people, we, we are not only assaulting their hearts. Friends, don't miss this. We're assaulting our own. When we treat someone else as less than human, then we're actually becoming less human ourselves. We're the ones who sustain heart damage from pride, prejudice, favoritism, etc. I found a few quotes, and I am certain that they are offered tongue-in-cheek. The first one is from the comedian W.C. Fields. He says, I'm free of all prejudices. I hate everyone equally. Uh, the next quote is from E.B. White. He says, prejudice is a great time saver. You can form opinions without having to get the facts. Again, I think both of these are offered tongue-in-cheek, but you see what it is that, that prejudice and favoritism do. Just personally, I want to let you know, I am a Seattle Seahawks fan. I live in Seattle. I'm a Seahawks fan, mostly because I'm a Jesus follower and Jesus loves the Seahawks. But if you're a Seahawks fan, you might remember their loss to the Pittsburgh Steelers in the 2006 Super Bowl. It's just burned in your memory. And it was a bitter grind, if you remember watching that game. Uh, not so much that they were losing to the Steelers, but that they could not overcome the officials who were deeply committed to Pittsburgh. And I was watching in my house. We had all kinds of friends and family over. There were people coming and going all day. And by about the third quarter, the mood had become pretty grim. It was icy in my living room. And, and then a friend of mine showed up, and she wanted to introduce all of us to her new boyfriend. And he came in all smiley wearing a Steelers jersey. And I'm telling you, friends, I am a Christian man, but I had a hard time loving him in that moment. 
And I ended up, you know, meeting him and, and he, we became friends. I ended up performing their wedding a little bit later on. I was able to overcome all of that, uh, mostly through the help of a Super Bowl loss support group, which I've had to visit several times through the years. But I can honestly tell you, I have no prejudice against the Steelers, no prejudice against Steelers fans today. Now, of course, I, I hate the Patriots, but, but I'm working. I'm still in process on that. And again, that's an example of favoritism, right? That's what it is we're trying to get over. And James specifically is talking about favoritism that has to do with social class, social status. He says this, listen, my brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you've insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing right. Whew, this is powerful. All right, let's jump in here. You know, this might remind you of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, that, that makes a ton of sense because after all, Jesus and James were brothers. And I love that fact. I, I love that James was the brother of Jesus because it always reminds me, you know, what would it take for me to be convinced that my brother was the Messiah? <laughs> I'm just telling you that's impossible, right? Because I know him. I grew up with him. And yet here's James. And by looking at the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, James is convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that his brother is Messiah. It's just beautiful. And here, Jesus and James are saying exactly the same things. You know, Jesus, he said, I honor those who are poor, who are hungry, who are grieving, who are hated, who are excluded, who are rejected. And in fact, those are the people Jesus hang out, hung out with and those are the things that Jesus himself experienced. So we want to honor those that God honors, and that is the pathway to victory. You know, in the book of Proverbs, it says several times that the Lord hates unjust scales. We are to weigh things fairly. We are to weigh people fairly, and we are to weigh ourselves fairly. We're to have just scales. And so James concludes that passage by saying, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. If you really love your neighbor and keep that command, you are doing right. And of course, this is an Old Testament commandment. It's out of the book of Leviticus. Jesus brings it into the New Testament. He says, this is the second greatest commandment that there is, second only to the first, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then, of course, the question inevitably comes, well, who is my neighbor and Jesus is asked that question. He answers it really clearly with the story of the good Samaritan. And so remember that story or, or, or go back into the scripture and read it. And what you'll see is that the person with need or the person who isn't like you or the person who annoys you the most or is sometimes the hardest to love or the person who the culture says you shouldn't love, that person, Jesus says, is your neighbor. And sometimes this requires some risk. Sometimes this requires a bit of sacrifice. But there is a, a parable in a modern movie, and many of you have seen this movie. It's the movie Forrest Gump. But there's a beautiful little clip in less than two minutes of the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Why don't you go ahead and watch this video? You know, it's funny what a young man recollects, because I don't remember being born. I, I don't recall what I got for my first Christmas, and I don't know when I went on my first outdoor picnic, but I do remember the first time I heard the sweetest voice in the wide world. You can sit here if you want. I had never seen anything so beautiful in my life. She was like an angel. We're gonna sit down, aren't you? What's wrong with your legs? I'm nothing at all, thank you. My legs are just fine and dandy. I just sat next to her on that bus and had a conversation all the way to school. My back's crooked like a question mark. These are going to make you Next to Mama, no one ever shoes. talked to me or asked me questions. Are you stupid or something? Mama says stupid as a stupid does. I'm Jenny. I'm Forrest, Forrest Gump. From that day on, we was always together. Jenny and me was like peas and carrots. Isn't that great? You see, the neighbor is the one who says, you can sit here if you want to. And what I love about that clip is not only is it a beautiful parable of the Good Samaritan, but it also ties right back in with this chapter in James. Because in James' context, it was about where you sat that mattered. And James is saying, church, you need to be the people that say, hey, you can sit here if you want. Abundant Life, one of the things I love about you is how you really do take seriously this call to love, this call to include, this call to care. You know, James says that practically speaking, we're to care for the orphan, we're to care for the widow, we're to care for those who are disenfranchised. And then James continues in verse nine. He says, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Wow. So there's a lot in this passage. And the recognition, first off, is that mercy is not getting what you deserve. Judgment is getting what you deserve. And so James is saying, look, if you're guilty of breaking any part of the law, you're guilty right? Guilty is guilty, and therefore no mercy is required. I fought the law and the law won, and that's true in your life as well. See, the human consequence of some sins are larger for these sins maybe than these sins, but when it comes to God, the consequence of sin is the same, no matter how big, no matter what the consequence is on this human scale, this human spectrum. 
The cost of sin is the cost of Jesus Christ's blood. The, the cost of our sin, no matter how small or insignificant we might think it is, is the cost of Calvary. And so part of his argument is we are all in the same boat. In other words, all of us are in need of grace. All of us are in need of mercy because we've all blown it somewhere. And so it's because of the sacrifice and, and the grace offered from Jesus Christ that we can receive mercy. And because we've received mercy, James says, now we get a chance to show mercy. Because we have been the recipients of it, now we bestow it upon others. And he concludes by saying, look, mercy is what triumphs. I want you to think for a moment about how rotten it feels to be guilty. How rotten it feels to be judged as guilty, especially when you know that you did the thing that you're being judged for. Especially when you know that you are guilty and, and you're the one who did that thing, right? I, it just feels horrible. It never feels good to be standing in front of a judge, even a good judge who reduces your traffic violation fine. And this may or may not be hypothetical in my life. But I want you to, to now think about, as a Christ follower, why would you want to make anybody else feel like that? Why would you want to stand in judgment over anybody else? Why would you want them to feel horrible? You see, that... That, that, that's not how Jesus approached us, right? Jesus, did he come with judgment or did he come with mercy? Jesus, did he come with condemnation for us or did he come offering grace? Jesus, did he come showing favoritism or did he treat everyone with love? You see, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 37. He says, do not judge and you'll not be judged. Do not condemn and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Friends, this dynamic is so powerful. You take this passage, and you compare it with the, the passage we just read in James, and what you see is this, that God is allowing us to participate with him in the kind of judgment we'll receive from God. In other words, we get to set the standard. If we don't judge others, then Jesus says, we're not going to be judged. And if we don't condemn others, then Jesus says, we're not going to be condemned. But we get a chance to set that standard because if we judge others, then we will be judged. And if we condemn others, then we will be condemned. And so Jesus is saying, look, no, forgive. You forgive others. You don't judge others. You don't condemn others. And therefore, you'll receive forgiveness. You won't be judged. You won't be condemned. In other words, we have received this incredible love from Jesus Christ. Why don't we set that as the standard for how we treat everybody else? You see, the gospel always contains this, uh, the good news that lets us know sort of the reality, or the bad news, rather, that lets us know the reality, and then the good news, which lets us know what God has done about it. And the bad news is this, that every single one of us is guilty. We've all blown it. We're all lawbreakers somewhere. But the good news is that Jesus wipes the slate clean. James says it so clearly that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is triumphant. And Jesus has so shown mercy for you. And he's shown mercy for me. So friends, let's show mercy to others. And if I can wrap this all up with something really simple, uh, just put it in sort of something that you can grab in your hand and carry with you out the door. It's simply this, that we are to walk humbly with God. I want to boil this whole passage down to something memorable and doable. 
we're to walk humbly with God. And of course, these challenges that I've brought today are all wrapped up in a single verse in Micah 6.8, which says, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? And here it is, here's the answer. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly. In other words, not just to love justice, but to reject any form of favoritism, partiality, or prejudice from your life. To love mercy, to receive it from God and to offer it freely to others and to walk humbly with God. In other words, there is one perfect judge and it's not you and it's not me. So friends, if we do these things, we are practicing muscle confusion and this will get us out of the rut of favoritism that we fall into in our lives. Why don't we go to the Lord now and ask him for his help in this? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we just come to you now and we come with humility. And we want to say thank you. Thank you for the way that you have approached us with your grace and with your love, offering us your mercy. It's because of you. It's because of your gift on the cross. It's because of you taking the initiative to come and to be with us and to show us the way and to offer us your grace, which is so beautiful. It's because of you that we can declare today that mercy triumphs over judgment. And so now that we know this, Lord Jesus, would you please help us to live it? Would you please help us have our arms open, our hands open to fully receive your mercy, your love, your grace over our lives. And then Jesus, give us the wisdom and the courage to offer it to others. We love you. We thank you for being with us in this thing. And we pray all of it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.